So last week, uh, Kyle unpacked Gideon uh, for you guys, and many of you are likely familiar with Gideon, not necessarily because you've read out of the book of Judges, uh, but maybe you had a child, uh, childhood book, one of those child Bibles, and uh, it taught you about Gideon. And I don't know about you, but after studying the book of Judges, I remember early on when uh, I was studying the book for the first time, I was like, man, Gideon is not like what they portrayed him to be. And it was kind of disappointing, to be honest with you, uh, to see these flaws in this complicated leader, where in one sense, you're confronted with his, his incredible faith, right? In fact, so much so that Hebrews 11, which is the heroes of the faith section, he's in that. So we're like, man, incredible faith. But also we see uh, a consistent lack of faith. And so there's this um, difficult, almost like this mixture, right? Uh, between, wow, that's impressive, your faith, and then what's going on? Why are you doubting? Why are you questioning God? And I love that about the Bible because I find myself so often in that space. I find myself in different moments in time responding by faith to something God has called me to do or to say. Uh, and then other times I found that I've shied away. Uh, I haven't said what I know he's calling me to say. I haven't shared my faith. I uh, haven't taken a specific step of faith that I know he's called me to take. And so when I read this about Gideon, uh, there's a couple things it does. One is honestly, uh, it, it first and foremost causes me to look at people who have failed and give them more grace. Honestly, I think our culture is, is awful at giving grace. And it's not just people that don't know Jesus. I found that, that the church is very ungracious as well, aren't we? Uh, how quick we are to turn on Christian uh, leaders for messing up, screwing up, saying something they shouldn't, doing something they shouldn't. And, and should they be held to a high standard? Yes. But... It's unavoidable when you walk through judges and you go, oh my goodness, like God still used that person. And so for some of you maybe that have struggled or fallen or failed, and maybe it was public, maybe it was private, but you felt the effects of that. Uh, I'm encouraged when I look at the book of Judges because I see God's not done with you yet. And I see that there's still opportunities to take these steps of faith in your life. But I also see, man, there's a gracious posture that I need to have uh, when, I, when I approach people that have fallen or have failed. Um, so Gideon's just experienced incredible victory. That's what we kind of ended with last week. He defeated the Midianites and, and he's chasing them down uh, going into chapter eight. And he's invited uh, other tribes to help finish off the task in destroying uh, those uh, Midianites who were so oppressive and evil and wicked and enslaved the Israelites. And so uh, one of the people groups, uh, one of the tribes is the tribe of Ephraim. And he had invited them. And, uh, and we're gonna pick up on how they respond after they have helped him in defeating the Midianites. But first, I just wanna be honest with you. We're gonna cover a lot here. And this is like a black eye when it comes to the history of Israel. This is a section that you typically will just, you'll, you'll see it and you'll skip it because it's, it's discouraging what you see happen. Uh, but we're gonna, we're gonna walk through it. And so in Judges chapter eight, verse one, uh, this is uh, what we read. It says, then the men of Ephraim said to him, and him is Gideon, uh, what is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? 
And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of uh, Abizer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided. Then uh, when he had said this, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, uh, and that name kind of aligns with how they acted. Please uh, give loaves of bread to the people who, how would you like to be from Succoth, right? Like, that's just, that hurts. I feel for them, right? Um, for they are exhausted, uh, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zomuni, the Muna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zumana already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zomuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there, he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Okay, so Ephraim, one of the most powerful tribes economically and militarily in, uh, in Israel, they approach Gideon after they've helped do that cleanup duty, and, and they're mad. They're, they're ticked off that he didn't invite them in the initial battle. Now, what's their motives here? Are they pure? Are they right? No. What they uh, were wanting that they feel like they missed out on is the glory, the spoils of the war. They, they wanted to be uh, known uh, for what they accomplished, and they're essentially accusing Gideon of robbing them from that. And, and so Gideon responds, and he, on, he responds in a very diplomatic way uh, and calms them down. And, and, and what he does is he kind of takes the high road here and says, hey, like, your, your tribe is way stronger than mine. We are the weakest, and you've already taken two of the princes of the Midianites. You've already got them, and, and I, I, I don't even have the kings yet. So what you've done is way more than what I've done. And, and he's, I mean, he's massaging their ego, right? And, and so this causes their anger to subside. They're not angry anymore, and everything's good there. Well, then Gideon, and he's got his 300 warriors, they travel on. Remember, they're pursuing these two kings uh, of the Midianites who have fled with about 15,000 soldiers. And so Gideon and his 300, they go into the town of Succoth. And as they are there, they, they're exhausted. And they say, hey, can we have some food, some water for uh, the, the troops? And they respond with, you don't have the kings already, do you? No. So we're not gonna we're not gonna help you. And so then Gideon, we see his anger, we see his rage as he threatens them by literally taking their bodies over these thorn bushes and briars. And and I mean it's it's pretty graphic what it means there. And 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 so and so he's like, that's what I'm gonna do to you when I come back, because God has given them into my hands. Then he goes to the next town. And well, and he goes there and he, and he asks them the same thing. We need help. Uh, our soldiers are tired and they respond the same way. Now, these towns, they're afraid of the repercussions of helping Gideon, right? They're very aware that he doesn't have those Midian kings yet. And if those Midian uh, kings rally their troops together and come back, they're going to wipe out our town. 
And so they're afraid, and so they refuse to help. And so Gideon, uh, in another fit of honestly just rage, says, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to tear down your tower, okay, when I have them uh, back. And so uh, that's kind of what we see uh, happening. And then Gideon ends up catching the two kings. And for the sake of our time this morning, I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to explain it. And he ends up surprising them and defeating them in battle. And he comes back to these two towns with the kings. And, and, and so when, when Gideon comes back, uh, he, he follows through on the threats that he's made, right? Uh, it, with Penuel, what does he do? And, and it's, it's awful what he does. He pulls down the tower, killing, it says, all the men of the town. So he rips down their tower, slaughters all these guys. Then he goes to Succoth and essentially does the same thing with their bodies, uh, dragging them across, I mean, uh, torturing them, essentially, and, um, and, and punishing them for not believing in what he could do, which is crazy. He, w- he was so deliberate about it, he actually pulled this young uh, youth, uh, this, this, this young adult, and said, I want to know the elders of the town of Succoth. I want to know who they are, because I want to make sure I deal with them. Okay, and, and so Gideon acts out in this, uh, rage that we see. And, and, and part of what we need to understand here, we're getting this different picture of Gideon as we walk through, but we start to see some of these motives of his. They start to reveal themselves as the narrator takes us on this story. In verse 18, um, we see Gideon speaking to these two kings, and it says this. It says, then he said to Ziba and Zomuna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Okay, so what we start to see here is the narrator telling us that although we may assume, oh, Gideon's motives are pure and right, he's finishing the task, right? He's bringing to completion what God has called him to do. But what we actually see here is Gideon's motivations at the core are coming from what? I am avenging the killers of my brothers right? What's the first thing he, he says to these kings, right? God has given me, uh, God has given you into my hands. Uh, this is God's judgment on you. And, and so you're going you're gonna to face God for what you've done to our people, right? No, he doesn't say that. He, he immediately, what? Brings up who you slaughtered, my brothers. And, and, and so in order to humiliate these kings, and, and he is beyond reason at this point, right? He turns to his young son and he says, kill him. Dad. <laughs> and he wants to humiliate them in front of everybody. His son is like, no, he's too young. He refuses to do it. So the kings mock Gideon and say a real man would do it. And Gideon does it. And he kills these kings. And I think what 
this helps us understand is there's some motives here that are driving Gideon, aren't there? And, and, and it, and it kind of, it, it brings these, kind of these undercurrents of a lack of trust, faithfulness, and reliance on God. And what you start to see is an ulterior motive, right? Revenge, but then also these towns who honestly, these are just little towns, like ignore it. Or if they're challenging you, tell them what God has already done, right? And yet he's like, no, you're, gonna, you're not gonna acknowledge my victory. Guess what? When I have victory, I'm coming back and I'm gonna wipe you out. And he does that, right? And so we see these underlying motives and we see these things that are at war within uh, Gideon. And, and, and so it, it's these things that when we read about, there was peace in the land, we go, no, there wasn't really uh, peace because uh, we see that Gideon, is, is taking things and he's taking them and leading in such a way that is outside of the will of God, but Gideon's not seeing it. Why? Like, I don't know. Because he's experiencing success. I mean, you guys, <laughs> Gideon has just won. If there was a the war, it's the war, Right? as many as the locusts, right? Like describing the Midianite army and Gideon and his 300, whatever they are, go. And, and, and once again, though, did Gideon do it? Did the, did the army defeat the Midianites? No, God did, right? Uh, but with this victory, with this uh, success, uh, we see that all of a sudden, he starts to like that. He likes the acknowledgement. The respect he, uh, that, that, that he's given. And, and ultimately, it, it leads to this um, false sense of reality that because I'm successful right now, I am doing things the way God wants me to. And you guys, we fall into that same trap, don't we? Like, like some of us, man, we're like, man, there's peace in my life. There's success financially in my life. My coworkers look up to me. Uh, my work environment is going so great. My family, my kids talk to me and they're in middle school. Like, you know, like, like we're just like, man, life couldn't be better. And all of these things that we have essentially created as this litmus test for me being right with God. And what Gideon warns us of is sometimes those very successes that you're attributing to God are, are, are things that are keeping you from God. And, and I think why it confuses us is we're still believing in God. We're still even giving God credit right? Like, like nobody's like, oh, uh, I did all of this, right? Like we're still going, God is great. God is good. All of this. But what slowly happens is we start to believe what the either statistics around us uh, or the peace around us or the success, the wealth, uh, you know, the wins, if I was a coach that are happening in my life. And I go, man, I am just, I am dialed in with God right now. And what happens is you slowly start to take ownership of your life, your leadership, your family, your situation. And without you even knowing it, because you haven't said no to God, you slowly take an ownership. You start to actually disconnect the reality of what you say you believe from your heart, your emotions, and your actions. And so for some of us, I'm going to be honest with you. This isn't like the popular sermon. 
Success is the worst thing that could happen to some of you. Success is the worst thing that could happen to, to certain people. And guys, I, I'm preaching to the choir, to be honest, because probably most all of you in this room can think of somebody that success ruined them. It ruined them. They became something they weren't. They, they, they changed. It changed who they were. It changed their family dynamics. It changed um, how they lived, how they acted, all of these things. It took a hold of, of them. And so uh, we see that this is starting to unravel within uh, Gideon. And you guys, I, I think the thing that's so hard about success and dealing with it is it feels good, doesn't it? Can we just be honest? Like, if you're successful, it, it, you know, it means people are acknowledging you. It means things are, are happening around you that, that, that are good, that, that, that people are, are saying, man, that's, a, that's an attribute of, that's, that's because of you. It's because of what you've done, what you said, uh, how hard you're working. Man, all these things. And so it feels good. And ultimately, I think it brings up this whole reality that we all struggle with, which is we love to have something to do with our success and our salvation, don't we? And why I love the Bible is it warns us and it reminds us that whatever success, and, and to the very corner, uh, cornerstone of your salvation experience, it is only through the grace of God. It is only by his grace. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Do you love how it just highlights that? It's like, let's just pause for a moment. For by grace you have been saved. And just so, just so you're, you're crystal clear on this, it is not of your own doing. You didn't save yourself. You weren't good enough. God wasn't like, oh, my life would be perfect if you were just in it, so huh, come on. No, you didn't bring anything to the table. And, and, and in fact, it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what the, the Bible continually highlights is, is not how great you are and how, and how you can earn it and deserve it. It guards us against it. It says, not a result of works. Why? Why? It says, so that no one may boast. God went to the cross so that you, for you and gave you undeserved, unmerited grace so that you could not boast in anything else other than him. So that the temptation to make much of yourself, the temptation to fall in line with everybody says about you, you cannot claim it because he says in verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is that like an amen right there? Like, I mean, that's amazing. That's amazing. Like, no one said amen. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, duh. Okay, but that is incredible. And we love verse 10. We love that we're created and gifted and blessed to do all of these things. But the tension is verse 8. For by grace you've been saved, because I want to have something to do with my grace. I want to have something to do with my success. I want to have something to do with my salvation. And my flesh is going to want to be acknowledged and praised for it. And so I, just as Gideon, and continually tempted to fall in love with spiritual success, physical success, whatever that success may be in my life. Because you guys, here's the reality now. Gideon is no longer this just unknown guy from this tiny tribe, right? Gideon is now a celebrity judge war hero. 
He is a celebrity. Everybody's talking about him. And, and this is what uh, the people of Israel do. In verse 22 then of, of chapter 8, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, remember, he is just destroyed. He's wiped out the enemy. No one thought it was possible. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in its earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was uh, 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Okay, so Gideon, this celebrity war hero, he comes back and, and, the, and the people are, are just responding honestly in worship to him. And they say, we want you to be our king. You rule over us. Now, now Gideon knows, because remember, he still knows in his mind, in his head. He goes, no, I cannot be your, I cannot be your ruler. You, you have a king. It's God. So he knows that. He turns down that request. And we're like, way to go, Gideon. But then verse 23 is really the last time that Gideon remembers who God is. What's crazy is, and it's tragic, is he almost immediately contradicts what he's just said. See, he refused to be their king because that position and honor solely belonged to God. But then he starts to take on and demand the honor that was due to a king. So how will he ask for financial reward here, right? He's asking for uh, the money, the profits, uh, for their deliverance. And then he, and, and so he becomes this very rich, wealthy individual. And then he takes a lot of that gold there and he uses it uh, to build this ephod, which was honestly, it was something that, that the priests uh, would, would wear. It, it, it kind of almost looked for some of us like a bib, like a big bib, and it had two stones on it. It was beautiful, and, the, and these two particular stones were used in some way by God, by the priests, to help communicate what they were supposed to do in times of crisis for the nation. And so, uh, and the ephod was to be worn by the high priest in the tabernacle, which was the tent where God was, was present among his people. At this point, that place was Shiloh. And, and, and so this ephod is a big deal. We casually will read that and we'll go, what's the big deal with that? It is the, the true place. It's to be a reflection of the true place where God is dwelling with his people and where they're able to discern the will of God. This is a big deal. And so what Gideon does is he's like, I'm going to make my own copy of that. And I'm going to set it up in my hometown. What he's doing is he's creating a rival place of worship. He loves what? The fact that now you come to my hometown, you come to me for the spiritual guidance. Now, is Gideon a prophet? 
No. Okay, and, 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 and so he's trying to essentially go, all right, you're going to come uh, to me in order to uh, identify what the will of God uh, is. And, and what we see Gideon doing here is, God, is, is Gideon has used God to strengthen his position. You see what he's doing here? He's using the victory that God has given him to build upon his position, his kingdom. Literally to the place where he's like, okay, I'm going to create a center of worship here where I want it to be. You guys, we're to use our position. It's, when we think of the gifts that God has given us and the position that some of you have, some of you, God has blessed you with an incredible position, whether it's leadership, authority, um, influence. That is an opportunity, whatever position that is, it's an opportunity to be used by you to serve the Lord, not for you to take from the Lord for yourself. Because what do we see, what do we see happen here? All of Israel does what? They worship the ephod. It's like, are you kidding? So they go and they start to worship it. And not just Israel. Like, like, make sure you're reading that clearly. Gideon and his own family start to worship it. It derails everything. And when you look at the book of Judges, these judges were to turn the people of Israel towards God out of unfaithfulness. And we see this judge, Gideon, turning the people into unfaithfulness. It's like, what, what are you doing? And so, and, and, and guys, uh, when, when we think about this and what Gideon leads them into, uh, it reminds me of, uh, man, something I just heard the other week, it, that we're to reflect the glory of God, we're not to absorb it. The glory of God is not something for me to build upon my life, my kingdom. The glory of God is to be reflected back to him. So whatever, whatever blessing, whatever gift, whatever thing happens in your life, it is an opportunity for you to reflect that glory back to God, to give him the credit that only he deserves, to be reminded that it was only by the grace of God that you have the ability, that you have the opportunity, that, that everything aligned for that, that is only through him and because of him. And so it's an opportunity to reflect that back to him. And you guys, once again, why is this an issue for us? Because in the midst of this, Gideon is, is still um, coming off of incredible success. And so it, it continually reminds us and brings us back to some of the greatest opposition you're gonna experience in your life is not in those low moments for you, Oftentimes, it's going to be out of a successful season in your life. And what do we see? See the warning here that just because life is good, ministry is good, things are happening, things are growing, it doesn't mean it's all right with God. 
And so what does Gideon do? Gideon continues to act more and more like a king. As you read on, you see that he has 70 sons by many wives and one by a mistress, um, which is taking on the character of a king, an evil king. And here's what's crazy. He even calls his illegitimate son Abimelech, who we're going to look at in a minute. Do you know what Abimelech means, that name? My father is king. Right? Now, guys, once again, how in the world can Gideon say to the people of Israel who want to make him king, no, you're to worship the Lord God and him alone. He's to be your judge. So how can he say that and then in the same breath almost, and, and, and through his actions, through what he does, through how he leads, how can he take on the very nature of a king at the same time? And, and, and here's what we're seeing here. There is this gap that is growing in Gideon's life between what he knows is true and would say he believes and trusts him and would probably even preach there's a gap between that and what's going on in his heart. And it's growing. It's not coming together. It's growing apart. And, and, and what, what does that communicate to you and I? Guys, this is kind of, honestly, it's, uh, it's a little scary to think about it. To think that I could be acknowledging Jesus as Lord. To think that I could be preaching that to you, to my kids, to my family, to my community, to my neighbors, and, and, and saying that, and yet my actions, the intent of my actions, my emotions, and what I'm doing that's coming out of my heart to actually be a contradiction to that, that is a scary thought. And, and, and to know that that, that, is, this, that is this thing that, that, is, that is literally going to, the enemy's gonna try to create in your lives and here is what you need to know. He's creating the divide in Gideon through success. And this isn't an anti-success sermon. It sounds like it, but it's not. Okay? If you're successful, fantastic, right? But you have to be aware that the enemy's trying to use everything to get you to that place where what you say you believe, especially if you say you're a Christian, where that is disconnected from your actions, your intent, and ultimately your heart. And so what Gideon had was a head knowledge that was dialed in to where he knew the right words to say, and he knew what to communicate to the people, but in his heart, it, it didn't have a hold of it. And so we have to ask this morning, is what I say I believe and what I preach and what I teach and what I trust in, does that match with what's coming out of my heart? For some of you, it's thinking about what's coming out of your mouth on a daily basis. For some of you, it's going deeper and actually looking at some of the intentions in your heart and asking, where are those intentions actually coming from? Because I'll tell you what, right now, there's, there's probably nobody in a greater seat of temptation for this than pastors, to be honest. And so we have to continue to go back to the gospel message. That's why Paul, when he's calling out Peter, who knows better and is acting differently around different people groups, he accuses him of not walking in step with the gospel, he says, in Galatians 2.14. 
And so we have to continue to evaluate how we're doing uh, that and, and understanding and knowing that just because we're blessed or successful, it doesn't mean that this isn't happening. We have to go beneath the surface. And, and we ultimately also just have to go back to Jesus who continually teaches us a different way. Continually. I mean, if there's anybody who had the right to force everybody to, to literally, uh, you know, for him to come and, 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 and say, I'm going to rule right now, he had every right, right? But he resisted that temptation from the enemy. Jesus came for a different purpose. Mark 10, 45 tells us what? For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, okay? Uh, so that's why he came. That's what he came to do. And aren't you thankful that's why he came? that he came in order to ransom your life, to, to pay the penalty for your, for my sins. He goes to the cross for that. You know what was so special about that? That means that I am no longer enslaved to success. That means that I no longer have to go home at night and go, honey, I don't think I'm successful enough. I don't think I measure up, all these things. Like, no, I, I go back to the gospel now. I go back to what, who ransomed my life. Uh, for some of you that have failed, uh, you've hit rock bottom. For some of you, you're still beating yourself up over things you haven't done or, or you have done. He's ransomed you from that place. Okay? So, so you don't have the right, if you're a follower of Jesus, to stay stuck in this space where you say, he can't use me. He can't do like all this. All, no, he has ransomed that thought from you. What Jesus did on the cross was defeat sin. He took it, nailed it to the cross, resurrected, and, and literally we see the analogy of, oh, death, where is your sting? You lost your stinger because he's victorious. And so we have this opportunity to walk in uh, that. And so uh, we see this happening. We see that, yes, it says there's peace, but we see that there's not worship happening. There's not obedience happening. And then ultimately in chapter nine, we see what is passed along. In chapter nine, verse one, it says, now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal, remember Jerubbaal is Gideon, it's another name for Gideon, that they rule over you or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Okay, so Abimelech, who I mentioned earlier, he becomes the focus right here. Abimelech is the one whose mother is the mistress. In other words, he is not in line for any of the inheritance and what does he do? He goes to Shechem and he essentially tells all of the people there, why would you want 70 different rulers when there is one who has the king or should have been king, pretended to be the king as their father, but also is one of you, 
My mother's one of you, so I get you. I understand you. So what greater leader could you have than one of your own people? And what greater leader could you have than me? I've got you, right? And they rally behind him, and then they fund his leadership with what? Money that's offered to Baal, right? To, it's idol worship money they give to him. So his whole mission, his, his, uh, his kingdom is funded off of that. And he takes that and he hires these mercenaries to go and carry out this absolute horrific plan and agenda where he slaughters his half-brothers. And only one escapes, the youngest. And, and, and it's just a scene that we go, what in the world, right? And, and then we, we read later on that Jotham, the one that escapes, he actually travels his way to Shechem where they've said, you are the one, and they've now made him king. He goes there and he positions himself on this hill that's right next to the city, but it's a hill. They're speaking down to him. He's got some safety up there. And, and he literally yells down to them the first parable that we see in scripture. And he, and, he, and he yells at the people, and it's a, it's, a, it's a prophetic curse. And he shares with them this story about these trees, these vibrant trees that, that, that everybody knew about, that, that, were, uh, that produced fruit and all of these things that the people depended on, and, and how these, these trees were approached to be king, and they denied it. Uh, and yet then was chosen this thorn bush, and the thorn bush accepted it. Now, thorn bushes in those days, uh, they were awful. They were short. They had no shade. And often they would catch fire. And then they would result in hurting everything around them. And so the, what he's trying to communicate to them is, hey, if Abimelech, if, if that was a righteous thing, how you made him your king and what he did to my brothers, if that's a righteous thing, then may you be blessed. But it's not. And because you've chosen him who is worthless, evil, there is going to be fire brought down from him towards you and you towards him. And so Jotham literally shares this parable and, 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 it's, and it's literally like, this is, this is a curse of judgment on you guys. And then what do we see happen after that? In verse 22 of chapter nine, it says, Abimelech ruled over Israel three years and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with uh, Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Zerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Okay, so Jotham has declared this curse. Then he takes off. He goes, he hides. The people, the people they're, they're worse off than they were. Gideon's dead. They're worshiping idols. And this whole scene is just horrific. All of these brothers murdered. And we ask, where is God in all of this? And then verse 23 tells us, right? It says that, that he did something. God sent, or, or, or in other words, God used an evil spirit to, to exact a righteous and perfect judgment on these evil people. What's so incredible about God is God can use evil to destroy evil. And, 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 and what we also see here is, and I talk to some people, and, 
And honestly, they're like, yeah, that's wrong, but I'll deal with that later. Yeah, that's, that's not okay, or, or we should just turn our, our heads, whatever, that's no big deal, and all that. And one of the things that I think we need to be reminded of, and it's not like my goal to like scare you, but the reality is this. Uh, ju- the judgment of God is not just this distant thing. It is a present reality. And we see it happening, right? There's no way you can go, oh, he's delaying judgment. No, he starts to exact judgment right then and there. And so he sends uh, this evil spirit. He uses it uh, to literally create a rebellion with the people that have rebelled. And, and, and so now all of a sudden, the very people that raised up Abimelech, they're acting against him. Okay, so now they're, they're, they're robbing people of money who are trying to pay Abimelech. Uh, they're stealing that. And then there's a leader that rises up uh, named Gael uh, in Shechem, and he takes on leadership, and he's like against Abimelech, talking him uh, down and all this. And Abimelech has a leader that's there that informs him that Shechem is against him. So what does Abimelech do? Uh, He takes the advice of this um, spy, essentially, and he shows up unannounced uh, in the morning, surprises them all, and he wipes them out. The very people that empowered him, the very people that gave him idle money uh, to kick off his campaign, he wipes them out. And and I mean, it's horrific, right? Uh, What he does uh, to these people. In fact, uh, over a thousand of the people of Shechem, they take refuge in this temple of an idol, and he goes up to it with his men and he burns it down, murdering all of those people. There's another town right next to it named uh, Thebes, and it looks like he's going to do the same thing. They're huddled together up in a tower, and then we see uh, fate, as you would have it, God intervening, a, a, a woman at the top of the tower in maybe the greatest displays of dodgeball, takes a millstone. It's probably more like this, but I'll just pretend. And she was a lefty, just for all you anti-lefties from four weeks ago, and and drills him on the head, okay? Rival, rival, rivaling, uh, you know, what David did. And so, hits him on the head as he got too close to the tower, and he falls down, he's fatally wounded, and he doesn't, he doesn't want to say that he was killed by a woman, and so he has his armor bearer kill him. And it's just, it, it just shows us this graphic disturbing picture of what society is like when they push God out. Evil swallowing up evil, rebellion taking on rebellion. And so what are are the things that we learn just about how God works when it comes to present judgment, when he's judging even right now? One, we see that often it's unseen, right? Nobody knew what God was doing there. But 56 and 57, it it, it tells us, right? As it closes down chapter nine, it tells us what it says. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So the first thing we see is that oftentimes uh, the judgment that God is judging it's, it's going to be unseen. The second thing we see is there is a period of waiting. Three years. Abimelech is allowed to lead, right? So there's waiting. 
And the third thing we see is what I've already said, that God will use and take evil to exact judgment on evil because he's that incredible. And so, so we're kind of left with this just depressing scene here at the end of, of chapter nine. And you're like, well, what's left? And in and, and chapter 10, and I'll just highlight the first five verses to you. What's so cool is we see God raise up, not out of response to the people pleading for him to raise somebody up, but he just does it because he loves his people. He's so gracious. And he raises up these two leaders. One's name is Tola and the other's name is Jair. And, and, and they, they lead for a total of 45 years. Uh, Tola, 23. Jair, 23. They lead for a total of 45 years, the people of Israel. And, and when you study that, you go, wow, that's just like a blip on the radar here. What was God saving the people from? I'll tell you what he was saving the people from. He was saving them from themselves. God is so gracious and good that he will intervene in your life and save you from you. And I also think that one of the takeaways uh, when it comes to like just a church is oftentimes the greatest enemy to a church is going to be the church. And, and, and when we see that, you guys, we can just be so thankful that God has given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who works, who transforms our hearts, who brings unity, who brings reconciliation. And once again, just speaks to his grace. And so you guys, I wanna, I wanna ask us kind of in closing this morning, as we've looked at this section, that's like I said, a black eye when it comes to the history of Israel. When he gets down right to, down to your heart and what's driving your actions, your intent, your emotions, your thoughts, where are those motives coming from? Where? Has success robbed you of dependency? Because as we've seen, you need it even more in the midst of success. How is what you believe to be true, preach to be true, trust is true, maybe post to be true, how is that being displayed in your actions? In other words, is there a gap that is growing between what you say and think and know and what you're actually doing? What has a hold of your heart? And you guys, let's right now just go to God with that. And let's seek him. Let's, let's, let's ask him to really peel back the layers because guys, it is tough to see what's really going on in our hearts. And... Uh, and when we seek, he, he answers. So let's go to him.